Genesis chapter 12. We'll get to the text in just a moment. But today's topic is this. How the Christian should view Israel. How the Christian, the Bible-believing Christian, should view Israel. I want you to know that this is not a political message that I'm giving today. Not by any means. This is a biblical message. It may sometime, as you assimilate these truths, it may affect your political leanings. But that's not my goal today. My goal today is to impart to you a biblical perception of the nation of Israel, past, present, and future. To share with you from the scriptures God's heart concerning Israel. To spur you on toward a biblical worldview by which you would be able to interpret events in the Middle East as they continue to unfold. I don't necessarily want to tell you how to interpret them. I want to give you the biblical tools to interpret them for yourselves as you develop a biblical worldview as it pertains to Israel. So how should the Christian view Israel? How should we view the challenges to her existence? How should we view her possession of the land? And how should we assume her chances of survival? There is much to be said in the Bible on this subject. Fully five-sixths of the Bible relates directly or indirectly to Israel and the Jews. They were, they are, and they will always be God's chosen people, the firstborn of God, and the apple of his eye. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity this morning to open up your word and allow you to speak to our hearts. And Lord, we would confess that we are people beset by many influences, easily swayed at times, not always having our souls and our minds, our spirits, our intellects fully anchored in the word of God. We just ask that this morning, Lord, you'd anchor us deep in the word of God. There'd be no wandering in our worldview. There'd be no compromise. There'd be no sway. Lord, we, we seek not the opinion of men this morning. We look to the wisdom of God, the will of God, the precepts of God, the truths of God. And so, Holy Spirit, come and teach us as we talk about this very relevant topic. Instruct us, impart to us your heart for the nation Israel. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Four basic points that we're going to look at. We'll only get through two of them today. This is going to be at least a two-part series. You're very surprised by that, aren't you? But four basic points, and we will try our best to get through two of them today, but I'll mention all four right now. We're going to be looking at, number one, God's purposes in Israel. Number two, God's promises to Israel. Number three, God's preservation of Israel. And number four, God's prophecies concerning Israel. Now, those last two will be next week, but today we'll be talking about the first ones. And I also want you to know that throughout this message, I will be seeking to refute a view which is known as replacement theology. A more modern manifestation of it, a quite more tame one really, is covenant theology. But, but I will be addressing throughout the message and in the coming weeks something called replacement theology, which basically says God has rejected Israel because they rejected the Messiah, and that now the church inherits the promises that were made to Israel. So the church, replacement theologians say, replaces Israel in the plan and the program and the blessings of God, that we become the sole heir of such things, that we are the new Israel, the new people of God, and God is done with that old nation. I need to tell you, as a student of church history, as I survey and look over the landscape of it, that it is hard to find a false teaching that has been more destructive in the world than replacement theology. I'll talk about this next week a little bit, but it has been that which has spawned incredible persecution for the Jewish people. As first labeled as cast off by God, and then labeled as Christ killers, and then persecuted primarily from the church, by the church throughout history. 
Replacement theology was the, the petri dish in which the Holocaust grew. The Holocaust was not based on replacement theology. It was a, a racial thing. It was a very wrong thing, obviously. Christianity does not squarely bear the blame of the Holocaust. But Christianity at the time was teaching. Wholesale, they were teaching that God was done with Israel, that he had cast them off, that they were no longer the chosen people of God, that they were the Christ killers. And at the time of Hitler rising to power in Germany, 95% of Germans were active churchgoers. And the church had simply been teaching for centuries, for millennia really, that God was done with Israel. And that was the impetus, that, that was the soil in which the Nazi philosophy found room to grow and blossom. And when it happened, the church stood idly by, thinking, well, they're rejected by God. I, have, I cannot think of a more destructive, horrific, or satanic doctrine than replacement theology. And it is a wholesale denial of the Word of God. The first point I want to address this morning is God's purposes in Israel. God's purposes in Israel. Why did he choose Israel? Basically five reasons that I'll address right now why God chose Israel. The first is that through Israel, God might bless all the nations. He chose Israel that he might bless all the nations through them. I refer you to your text now, Genesis chapter 12, reading verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chose Israel as the vehicle for blessing for all the nations. The plan of God, the salvation of God was never meant to be exclusive to Israel. But there was a delivery system. And that delivery system or that delivery vehicle was the nation of Israel. God told them from the beginning. So that is one reason why he chose them. Second reason why he chose them was that through Israel, God might demonstrate his faithfulness. He chose these people that through them, he might demonstrate his faithfulness. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 9. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. He chose Israel, the fewest of all the people, that he might prove himself faithful, strong on their behalf. God still works that way today. Aren't we told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that consider your calling, brother, that there were not many wise, not many noble, but God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong and the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And in that, when God chooses you and I within the church and uses us mightily, it is to his glory. His power is displayed. His faithfulness is made known. And so it was in his choosing of Israel. They were the fewest of people. And he set his choice and his love upon them that he might demonstrate himself faithful throughout the generations as he preserved them. Third reason is that through Israel, God might teach all the nations of himself. Isaiah 43, verses 10 through 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there, was, there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. 
The Jews were to be a light unto the nations. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to shed light on the character of God, the purposes of God, the goodness of God, the person of God. They were to be the witness, the one that would testify. God, wanting to reveal himself to all of humanity, chose a nation through which he would do it, and it happened to be the nation of Israel. And so we're told in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, that the things that happened to Israel happened as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Fourth reason God chose Israel is that through Israel, God might be praised. Isaiah 43, verses 20 through 21. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. He chose them to be a vehicle of praise, that they were to praise him and that as he demonstrated his faithfulness through his dealings with them, that all the nations would then praise such a faithful God, such a mighty God. Who is like the Lord, the one who saves with a mighty and an outstretched arm? And we see throughout the Old Testament that the testimony of Israel will go into the land and other nations would tremble as they would think of the God of Israel. And reason number five that we'll address right now is that through Israel, salvation might come to you. Jesus encountered the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He said to her in verse 21 through 22, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. She wasn't a Jew. She was half. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Very clearly stated in the Bible. Salvation is from the Jews. In that God told Abraham that he would bless all the nations through him. That was the promise of the Messiah. When he said, and you shall be a blessing to all the nations, that was a prophecy about the Messiah coming through the line of Abraham and coming through Israel. And when Jesus came, he went first to the lost sheep of Israel, he said. And he said very clear that salvation is from the Jews. And so Paul warns us, the Gentile church, in Romans chapter 11, not to be arrogant against the Jews. Christianity has not replaced Judaism. We are the continuation of Judaism. And it is the height of hypocrisy and arrogance and and an unbiblical ideology to say that we have replaced them, that we are somehow above them. No, we came forth from them. The original church was all Jewish and salvation is of the Jews. And your King and Savior, Jesus Christ, came as a Jew. Could have came, amen. Could have came however he wanted to come. Apparently when God chose chose, to drape himself in humanity, he chose to do it in Jewish flesh. It's very profound for you and I. So it is through Israel that we realize the blessings of God, the faithfulness of God, that we learn the character of God, that God is praised, and that salvation is made available. Now reason with me. If then God were not to fulfill his promises and or covenants to Israel, then it follows that there would be no blessing for the nations. Then it follows that God would then prove himself unfaithful. And we would learn not of a promise-keeping God, but of a promise-breaking God, of a capricious God. That is, someone who's given over to radical mood swings. We would learn if God cast off Israel of a capricious God who at one time said to the apple of my eye and the other time said, I cast them off. That is not Yahweh. That's not the God of the Bible. That's the Allah of the Quran. He is capricious. The Muslim knows that he could do everything that the Quran outlines and then get to that moment of paradise and Allah says, forget about it, just don't like you. He's capricious in character. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not what we learned through his dealings with the nation of Israel. If he did not keep his promises and covenants, then God would not be praised according to his character. And most poignant and potent for you and I is that we would have no sure hope of salvation if God has rejected the Jews. We would have no hope of salvation. 
We would scoff at Philippians 1.6. It says, God is faithful to complete the work he's begun in you. We would scoff at that. We'd say he wasn't faithful to complete the work that he began in Israel. Why would he do it with us Gentiles? He has a much longer history with them. Far more promises were given to them. If he were to renege on those, what in the world would make us think that we could ever be secure in our salvation? If God ever broke a covenant with Israel, as replacement theologians said, say he has, then we have no hope in eternity because our salvation is based upon a covenant that was given to Israel. Jeremiah 31. We have simply, according to the book of Romans, been grafted into that covenant or that promise. And if you believe that God has rejected Israel, then you believe that God is a promise-breaking, a covenant-breaking God, and you have no hope whatsoever in salvation. You do not know if God will not cast you off as he has supposedly the Jews. And so for most of Christian history, the church has taught that God abandoned Israel and the Jews because they rejected the Messiah, even though it's clearly stated in Romans 11, 1 and 2. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, Paul wrote. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, it is true that a segment of the Jewish population in Israel during the first century rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And it is true that many Jews today reject Jesus as Messiah. But we're told in the Bible, and specifically in Romans 9, 10, 11, that God has preserved a faithful remnant. That there is always a believing remnant within Yisrael who recognize Yeshua, Jesus, as Mashiach, the Messiah. And God has seen to it that he preserves a remnant and that he preserves the people. And remember that he chose them according or, or in order to demonstrate his faithfulness. God is faithful even when we're faithless. It is true that many rejected him, but not all. The early church was all Jewish. And it is not true that they killed Jesus. That, that simply isn't true. They've been called throughout history Christ killers. That's a stigma that sticks to them today. They hear Christianity and they think, well, you know, they think that we killed their, their Savior. That simply is not true. God demonstrated his love. And that while we were yet sinners, he gave Christ Jesus to die for us. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. No man takes my life from me. It was God that put Jesus Christ upon the cross because he so loved the world. It was not the Jew. It was not the Roman. It was not you. It was not your sin. My sin put Jesus upon the cross. That's not true. Your sin did not obligate God to give his only begotten son. In his love, he chose to do it. And so he chose Israel to demonstrate his faithfulness, and I love the way Isaiah 49, 14 through 16 puts it. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. But Zion has said, that's God's people there, Zion has said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. There was a moment where Israel was thinking, where's the Lord? He's left us. Look at the response. The Lord says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will never forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. The Lord says it is more likely that a woman would forget her nursing child. Oh, I forgot about you. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> it's ridiculous. The Lord says that that is more likely to happen than him forgetting and rejecting his people Israel. He says that theologically speaking, he cannot because they are inscribed upon the palms of his hand. Now that was given to Israel. That's speaking about the cross of Jesus Christ. Now we sometimes speak about that verse with regards to the church, but that was written to Israel. It's not necessarily wrong then, you know, to apply it to the church in this sense that it represents the heart of God for his people in general. That's the Father heart of God. That, that's God our Savior. There's none like him. That's God. And so, in a sense, we can apply it to us only in that we represents the wonderful heart of God for his people. 
But when it says, I'll never forget you, I've inscribed you upon the, upon the palms of my hands, that was written to Israel. But it teaches the church. And he chose Israel to teach the nations. And through his faithfulness to them, we are taught about his faithfulness to us. He chose Israel that through her he might be praised. If he's cast them off, how can there be praise? And yet read Jeremiah 31, 35 through 37. It says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. He says, if this fixed order departs from me, if these things cease to happen, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. If the heavens can be measured. What does science tell us? It can't be measured. It goes on and on and on, galaxy beyond galaxy. We can't even imagine it. The Lord says, you go ahead and measure that, and this fixed order departs, and everything ceases to be, and then I would cast off Israel from being a nation for all that they have done. Have they erred? Yes. Were they unfaithful? Yes. But God is faithful. He chose to reveal salvation through Israel. Isaiah 62, 1 through 7. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. And the nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord will designate. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Listen to God's heart for Israel. There is still a future plan for them, the restoration of the nation of Israel that will happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We'll address that next week. But that scripture continues on. And he says, It will no longer be said to you, forsaken. Nor to your land will it any longer be said, desolate. Do you realize that around the world just a century ago, The world opinion was they are forsaken of God and their land is desolate. There is no Israel anymore. That was the general opinion of the church. He says, no longer. But you will be called, my delight is in her. And your land, geographical land, the stuff you see on your map, and your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you. And to him your land will be married. Who does the land belong to? Well, I don't know. Maybe the Palestinians. Are you kidding me? Have you read your Bible? It belongs to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. And he entrusted it to Israel. Any other view is an anti-biblical view, very simply put. You can hold it. Just don't claim to be a Christian with a biblical worldview. It goes on. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen, people that pray. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. They were told that we're to be interceding for the nation of Israel. Not criticizing, not coming against, not rallying against, but interceding for the nation of Israel. For the recognition of their Messiah until he establishes Jerusalem as a praise in all the earth, as he'll do as his second coming that we'll address next week. There is just no way, biblically speaking, that you could ever believe that God is done with Israel. It's just impossible. He is, they are still the apple of his eye. And those of us who claim also to be a people of God, who claim to be a people after his own heart, who claim to seek God, must understand and adhere to and follow and esteem and teach and champion then our God's heart 
as it pertains to the nation of Israel. Anything else is inconsistent and unbiblical. Understand that there is a different program for national Israel than there is for the church. We see it throughout Scripture. Again, we'll address it next week, but prophetically speaking and historically speaking, past, present, and future, there is a different program with how God is dealing with Israel than how he is dealing with his church. Salvation is only through Yeshua the Messiah, that's for sure. But there's a different way that God brings Israel to that place once again, and he brings the church to that place. And again, we'll see much of that next week, but let's develop a little background for it as we look at point number two. Point number one was God's purposes in Israel. Point number two is God's promises to Israel. Again, in the text where you are, Genesis chapter 12. I want to read this time through verse 7. We'll we'll start in verse 2. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 2. This is the Abrahamic covenant. He says, And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Four basic components that I want to point out concerning the Abrahamic covenant, certain promises made to the nation of Israel. Four basic components. Number one, he told Abraham that they would become a great nation. That they would become a great nation. That nation is, of course, the Jews. Number two, that they would have God's protection and covering. He said, I'm going to bless those who bless you and your descendants. And those who curse you and your descendants, I will curse. Wonderful study that you can do that I have a hint we might do in the near future is look at nations throughout history who have been a blessing to Israel and those who have been a cursing to Israel and see what has ensued for them afterward. But that's a promise of God. I will be your covering. Bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. Number three, he said that they would be a blessing for all the nations. That is the prophecy of the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And number four, he promised them the land of Canaan in verse 7. Now, that is not a spiritual land. That is a literal geographical land. If you doubt that later on, you can look at Genesis 15, 18 through 21, where it names the borders of the land. It identifies it by rivers and by borders and by towns. It says here is the literal geographical location. Now, replacement theology will teach, well, it's a spiritual land. It's spiritual promises. And so they allegorize the text. They spiritualize the text began to happen in about the 3rd century that largely Scripture was viewed as allegorical and the promises made to Israel were spiritualized. And so that lent itself to the rejection of Israel and that lent itself to the persecution of Jews. And that lent itself to all sorts of heresies within the church. But a literal, basic, no-brain, junior-high reading of the Bible says, oh, he promised them a literal, physical, geographical land, the land of Canaan. Now, understand that this covenant and its various components make up an everlasting promise. It is an everlasting covenant. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. For all the land which you see, Genesis 13, 15, excuse me. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will give it to you and your descendants forever. What does God mean when he says forever? Forever. 
Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 through 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So these promises made to Abraham about being a nation, about having God's protection, about the Messiah and salvation, and about the geographical land of Canaan is an everlasting, perpetual, throughout the generations, forever promise. If you can't see that, if there's any question in your mind, about who the land of Israel belongs to, I don't know what to say to you. I mean, it's the plainest thing in Scripture. If you reject this, then you you need to reject the rest of your Bible because this is about as simple as it gets. I mean, that's about as clear as God can be. Now, I understand, believe me, I understand the human tragedy of conflict in the Middle East, the human reality throughout the centuries for the struggle of the land. Believe me, I know that. I know the political situations, inside and out, backwards and forwards. I know the arguments for and against Israel possessing the land. But I am simply reading the Bible, which, forgive me, I believe. It tells me that God gave the land to Israel. If you spiritualize that or reject that or refuse that in any way, you are on a slippery slope for which there is no recovery when it comes to your biblical interpretation. Now, that everlasting covenant was confirmed to Abraham's son Isaac. Now remember, prior to having Isaac, he had Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the promised son. Ishmael was the proverbial work of the flesh where Abraham got impatient waiting for the promises and he went into his wife Sarah's uh, maidservant, had relations with her and birthed Ishmael. And he said, Lord, let Ishmael live before you. And God said, no. Ishmael is not the promised son. I will bless Ishmael. I don't hate Ishmael. I'll bless him. In fact, I'll make him the father of many nations. And Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations. And God has blessed the Arab people immensely. Historically speaking, where has all the oil in the Middle East been? Who has the vast majority of land in the Middle East? And the vast sum of resources and the mighty rivers that flow through the Middle East. Where are they? They are all located in Arab countries. God has blessed Ishmael. God has blessed Ishmael incredibly, just like he said he would in the book of Genesis. But he said, but Abraham, that's not the one with which I will establish the covenant concerning the little piece of land, less than 1% of the total land mass in the Middle East. I'm just going to reserve this little 1% for the promised son, Isaac. And so God confirms that covenant with Isaac in Genesis 26, 3 through 4. He says to Isaac, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so God confirmed his covenant to the promised son, Isaac, and then he confirmed it to Isaac's son, Jacob. There was Jacob and Esau. And the covenant comes through the line of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. God confirms it here in Genesis 28, 13 through 15. And behold, the Lord God said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with you, 
and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Now, this is a covenant that he made with the descendants of Abraham concerning the land of Israel and the other aspects of the covenant. I want you to see now that the fulfillment of this covenant, the responsibility of it, rests solely upon the shoulders of God. Because certainly Israel failed, didn't they? Read the Old Testament. I mean, no people has ever blown it so much, except for maybe you and I. They failed horribly and miserably time and time again. They forsook the Lord. But I want you to see that God did a very unique thing that had never been done before and put the weight and the responsibility of the covenant upon him. Generally, a covenant has a responsibility of two. He put it solely upon his shoulders. Go to Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15. This is incredible here. We'll start reading in verse 7 to the end of the chapter. This is wonderful theology for you to know. On whom does the responsibility of the covenant of the land of Israel rest? Starting in verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He's speaking to Abraham. And Abraham said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? An honest question. Lord, this is an amazing promise. How am I going to know that you're for sure going to do it? I want a little bit of proof. Bold, but we've all said the same thing. Verse 9. So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And he didn't cut the birds because there, there were two of them. Now, this is how generally in the Near East at this time uh, a covenant was ratified. They would take a sacrifice, they would cut it in half, they would spread it apart, and the two who were entering into the covenant would walk through the sacrifice, thereby being bound in that covenant together. And so he said to Abraham, go and get these animals, cut them in half, spread them apart with a bird on each side. Now look what happens. Normally, the two would walk through it together and be bound to the responsibility of the covenant. Verse 11, And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. He's talking about Egypt, when they're enslaved in Egypt. God's telling them, listen, there's going to be some tough times. Know that there is going to be some tough times. It's just like when Jesus said to the church, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, there's going to be a time where you're enslaved. And then he says, in verse 14, but... I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. I will redeem you. Verse 15, And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Isn't the Lord nice? Verse 16, Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Prezrite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusites. The Lord did something incredible. He forbid Abraham from passing through the sacrifice and he came while Abraham was in a deep sleep and he himself, contrary to the popular practice of the time, passed through the sacrifice, thereby placing the totality of the weight and the responsibility of the fulfillment of the covenant upon himself. In other words, Abraham, I'm not going to let you mess it up. I'm not going to let it depend upon your faithfulness or your performance, but mine alone. Kind of sounds like your salvation. 
Charles Ryrie in his book on theology comments and says, The ratification ceremony described in Genesis 15, when compared with Near Eastern customs, indicates that God alone obligated himself to fulfill the terms of the covenant since only he walked between the pieces of the sacrificial animals. The significance of that is striking. It means that God swore fidelity to his promises and placed the obligation on their fulfillment on himself alone. Abraham made no such oath. He was in a deep sleep, yet aware of what God promised. Clearly, the Abrahamic covenant was not conditional on anything Abraham would or would not do. Its fulfillment in all its parts depends only on God's doings. That is wonderful. That is the nature and the character of our God. And the same thing is true for our salvation. We are saved by a covenant meant for initially the nation of Israel and then to be a blessing for all the nations. You who are not Jewish have simply been grafted into that covenant with Israel. And the weight of it fully rests upon the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. I mean, we rejoice in that as Christians. We're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works. But then when it comes to the Jews, we say, well, they didn't work so well, did they? God rejected them. We're saved by grace through faith, but God rejected and broke his covenant with them. Even though he said it depended solely upon him and it was everlasting, he broke it with them. But with us, no. That's asinine. That's insane. That is absolutely insane. Our salvation depends upon the preservation of the working of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is faithful to his covenants. And so understanding then that the covenant with Abraham is an everlasting covenant and that the responsibility, the weight of it rests upon God alone, Doesn't it make all the sense in the world that God is currently working then on behalf of Israel? To think any other way makes no sense. I mean, it just logically doesn't jibe. If it's an everlasting covenant and the weight of it rests solely upon God, it makes sense that God is currently involved in affairs in the Middle East. Now allow me to say this. That does not mean that God authors Israel's every move. God is infinitely and intimately concerned with you. He knows when a sparrow falls, he numbered the hairs upon your head. And yet he gives you free will. And you do horrific things. Don't you? I do. I'm telling you that in war, Israel is going to do horrific things. They are the most radical fighting machine on the face of the earth right now. They have to be. Because in the mind of the secular Jew, they either win the war or they cease to exist. They don't lose a little bit of land. They don't lose some finances or a city or territory. They cease to be a nation if they don't win the war. Well, over 90% of Jews in the world currently are secular by definition. And so in their mind, we must defend ourselves. But historically speaking, God has always been a defense to the nation of Israel. We'll talk about that next week. That's point number three. But my point right now is simply that it makes sense. We can know for sure that God is involved and is working for his plan what will unfold in the Middle East. Now understand this. Not only did God promise to them the land, But he also promised to them discipline. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Amen? Ever experienced that? Boy, Israel sure did. God told them, listen, you guys mess up. You guys follow after other gods. I'm going to discipline you by removing you from the land. 
We read about it in Deuteronomy 28, 63 through 65. And it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. And you shall be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. And among those nations you shall find no rest. Man, that's been historically true. And there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and despair of soul. It didn't have to happen. God warned them repeatedly over and over through the scriptures and the prophets. Follow faithfully after your God. If you don't, if you pass your children through the fire and you worship false gods and you engage in all this immorality, I'm going to discipline you. What loving father doesn't discipline his children? You don't watch a child run into the street and see a father stand by and go, oh, well, don't, you know, don't want to bum him out. As a car comes, no. That child is disciplined by the father who cares and loves. So is our God. He told Israel, you mess up, I'm going to have to discipline you. He did the same thing with you and I. And he did so three times in history. 722 years before Christ, he brought the Assyrians. They carried the people off captive. He brought them back sometime later to the land. Again, 605 years before Christ, he brought the Babylonians. He had warned them through Isaiah. He'd warned them through Jeremiah. They did not heed the warnings. He brought Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He carried them off captive. They were captive for 70 years. And then he brought them back to the land. And it happened the last time in 70 AD, 70 years after Jesus Christ now. Jesus Christ warned them. You know how to tell the weather. You cannot discern the signs of the times, he said. If only you had recognized this, the day of thy visitation. And he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem. He said, how long I've wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. And the God of the universe, who draped himself in the flesh of a Jew, stood on the Mount of Olives and wept over the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Tell me about God's heart for Israel. And he said, once again, Israel, you will be disciplined because you have wandered from your God. And he prophesied the destruction in 70 AD. And in 70 AD, sure enough, Titus Vespasian, that Roman leader, came in and destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the Jews. And so they've been scattered upon the earth since that time. But not only was there the promise of removing them from the land, but there was a sure promise of restoring them to the land. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 3 through 4. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. Now, he brought them back from the Assyrian captivity. And he brought them back from the Babylonian captivity. And he is currently bringing them back from their dispersion across the face of the earth to the four corners of the earth. God is currently bringing them back and restoring them to the land. What is significant about this restoration is that after 70 AD, after some time passed, Israel ceased to be a nation. Rome changed its name from Israel to Palestina. Palestine. After the ancient Philistines, who were a, seer, a seafaring people that came and settled in the southern part of Israel, an area now known as the Gaza Strip, and established seven nation cities there, the Philistines, whom Israel continually warred against, that ancient mortal enemy of Israel, when Rome, having become a Christian nation now, and adhering under the leadership of someone called Augustine, to a theology that said God is done with Israel, changed the name to Palestina to commemorate their ancient enemy and to erase the name of Israel forever, the Philistines. Well, I need to tell you, anthropologists tell us that the Philistines are an extinct people group. Yasser Arafat some time ago claimed that the Palestinians were descendants of the Philistines. That's interesting. Because in 1968, 
when he wrote the PLO charter, he wrote there, Palestinians are Arab nationals that live in the land of Palestine. In the national charter, he identified himself as Arab. We know, historically speaking, he's Egyptian. In his rhetoric to the media, he said, we're descended from the Philistines. We were here before Israel. An anthropologist says, what kind of a nut job are you? They're an ancient, extinct, 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 extinct people group. They ceased to be a nation. Israel did. The name of the geographical location called Palestine. There's never a people called Palestinians. Never, 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 never. But remember that God had promised them the land as an eternal possession. And so God said in Jeremiah 31, 36, If this fixed order departs from me, then the offspring of Israel will cease to be a nation before me forever. And so we can believe, and there was a remnant of Christians who believed that God would restore them to the land. They read their Bible. They simply believed what it said, and they said, God's going to bring Israel back to the land. And there was this little promise tucked away in the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verse 8 where it says, who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? And there were some who believed the Bible and said, Israel's going to be a nation again, and it's going to happen in a day. And on May 14th, 1948, at midnight, Israel became a nation again. After 2,000 years of not being a nation, of being dispersed across the face of the earth. Historically unprecedented has never happened in the history of the world. In fact, God said in his Bible, who's heard of such a thing? Who's seen such a thing? Can a nation be born in a day, a land in a day, and a nation be brought forth all at once? And yet God made Israel a nation again. Our God is a faithful God. He's a faithful God. And as you think about the events unfolding, and you think about world opinion and what your opinion should be. I want you to hear the fervor with which God says he will restore the people to the land. Jeremiah 32. Turn there. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. Starting in verse 37. Jeremiah 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. Now, of course, they were restored after the Assyrian captivity, after the Babylonian captivity. But there's only been one diaspora, one dispersion that where Israel has gone to all the lands of four quarters of the earth. So we know that there is a current fulfillment now of them being brought back to the land. There were the past fulfillments from Assyria and Babylon. But, but there's only one after 70 AD where they were dispersed across the face of the earth. And then he says in verse 38, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. God does not say that about any other topic in the entirety of Scripture. The only thing that God says he will do with all of his heart and all of his soul is restore Israel back to the land. Now you tell me who the land belongs to. You tell me what the opinion of every Christian should be about Israel being in the land. You tell me if we should support the division of the land. You tell me if we should not support Israel with every possible means. It is the only thing in the entirety of the universe that God said he will do with all of his heart and with all his soul is keep Israel in the land. He's chosen her, just as he's chosen you and I, but he calls her the apple of his eye. 
Apple is a literal translation. It means pupil. What happens when someone pokes you towards your eye? What do you do? Instinctively, you guard yourself. Anyone pokes at your eye, you instinctively guard. God instinctively guards Israel. It's a pupil, the apple of his eye. It says in the book of Deuteronomy that his eyes are always on the land and he'd sooner let the sun and the moon depart than forsake them. The Bible tells us exactly how we're to feel and respond. One more passage, Jeremiah 33, 7 through 9. Jeremiah 33, 7 through 9. And I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear of all the good that I do for them. And they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. There is not peace in the land right now. There will be peace in the land. God is going to establish and restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel. And God says the way that we ought to feel about it, well, to him, it's a name of joy, a name of praise, and a name of glory. We ought to rejoice in God's work in Israel. And I want to remind you now, as things unfold, and we'll address it over the next couple weeks, but as things unfold in Israel and the war goes on, I want you to remember two things. Jesus said in the last days you would hear of wars and rumors of wars. And that nation would rise against nation. And he said, when you see these things happen, look up because your redemption is drawing near. And the very last thing I want to give you is in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel's after Jeremiah. Ezekiel 36 I want you to remember why God does all that he does for Israel. I want this to be your parting thought. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 16. This is incredible. I want you to remember this when you watch the news. Then the word of the Lord God came to me, Ezekiel 36, 16, saying, Son of man, When the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they, were prof- they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they've come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name. Notice what God says there. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and will bring you back into your own land. And we are seeing and have seen the greatest fulfillment of history the most incredible defense of God on behalf of his name, Israel, back in the land. How should the Christian feel about Israel? Well, I don't know. How do you feel about the name of God? Because he equates his faithfulness to Israel with his holy name, and you are his holy people. Have a biblical worldview, amen? Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that What we see today is a portrait of your faithfulness. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make not only global application for us, but individual now application to our lives. 
that we would be reminded that if you could be faithful to that little nation through thousands of years, you can deal with our troubles today. If you can deliver them from the hand of so many oppressors and murderers, you can deliver us from the enemy today. If you can preserve and bless them, you will preserve and bless us. You are a faithful God. You are the God of Israel, and you are the God of the church. And we thank you, Lord, for including us in the promises. We thank you for this love. Stir great faith in our hearts now to trust you with our lives and with the future of the nation of Israel. You're faithful and you're good.